0: Well, I am so glad that you are joining me today for another day going through the Bible, and uh, we are continuing our journey through the book of 1 Thessalonians. And uh, if you haven't had a chance yet to subscribe to my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards Facebook page, Anthony P. Richards, my Instagram page, AP Richards, links are in the descriptions below. Please do that, like, comment, subscribe, and share, and let's get this information out to as many people as we possibly can. I'm looking forward to going through this chapter and the next two chapters I'm going to break up into two halves because there's just so much in it and I really don't want to rush through anything and I don't want it to be something that we miss anything because these, these couple of chapters contain some of the most uh, poignant and relevant verses for us as Christ followers about the future and about what God wants us to do in the future between now when we accept Christ and when he comes back and then starts to really go into when's he coming back what's it going to look like and uh, so today we're going to look at 1st Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 1 to 12 and really looking forward to this and uh, hope you're ready to go and uh, got your Bibles all set to go and notes. And I know some people sent me some photos actually of uh, some new Bibles they bought that had um, wide margins so they could write lots of notes as they follow through. So uh, if you've ever done that and you've got a great link to Amazon, put it in the comments. Let people know where you got it and whether it's good for taking notes as we go through this each day. First Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 1, finally then brethren, we urge and exhort, very strong words, in the Lord Jesus that you as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. That you should abound more and more. You should abound more and more, just as you ought and as you have received. Now, Paul's use of the word finally doesn't mean that he's finished. What it means is he's just getting to the closing part of this letter uh, and he's about to talk about practical instruction uh, of how that plays out. He's he's really He's given them the outline of the practical instruction. Now he's going to talk about how to actually use it. And uh, there is an opportunity for us uh, to understand that there, there are things in the Bible that we need to live out after we have read them. And this is kind of what church was saying. Uh, Paul was saying to the church in Thessalonica. He was very thankful for the growth that he'd seen in them since he'd been with them, but he, he needed them to abound more and more in a walk that would please God. Now, that means that Christian maturity uh, is never actually finished on this side of eternity. It, it now, doesn't matter how far you've come, how long you've been a Christian, there's always opportunities for growth in love and holiness. Uh, there's always an opportunity for us to abound more and more. You never arrive. Uh, that's why I say, you never get to retire as a Christian. And, Paul says, "Just as what I what do I need you to abound in? What you received from us." Uh, Paul took it for granted here that the these following verses uh, were going to be verses that the Thessalonians already understood, and because he was only with them for a few weeks, remember. Remember, he establishes the church; he leads them to a relationship with Jesus. And then what does he do? He then teaches them. So he doesn't leave them at the follower stage. He teaches them how to be disciples, disciplined followers of Christ. And he instructed them in the basic matters of Christian morality. And he knew that it's very important for people who are new believers to understand the principles of a Christian life. That's why he says, this is how you ought to walk in order to please God. Uh, Their manner of living was something that needed to be in order to please God, not please themselves, and and when any person becomes a Christian and has that basic understanding, then the following instruction that he's about to talk about in the next verses that are coming up actually make a lot of sense. Okay, let's move on to verse two. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Interesting point. I've pointed this out to many people. Uh, it's it's I love how Paul you know, uses the names of Jesus, Jesus uh, Christ, our Lord, Lord Jesus. Uh, and he's very specific about when he uses uh, all of the titles. But the most common denominator is the actual name of Jesus, which is why you can't ever allude to the name of Jesus when you're talking to somebody about him. Uh, you, you know, do you know the Lord? Do you, do you know Christ? You have to say, do you know Jesus? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what do you believe? Are you one of those religious people? No, I just love Jesus. Oh, so, so you're like, no, no. I just love, like, make everything about Jesus. That's what Paul did. Now, Paul gave them commandments. He said, for you know what commandments we gave you. The, he didn't say, you know what suggestions or what guidelines or the boundaries we'd like you to stay out of. No, he said they're commandments and they're from the Lord Jesus, so you receive them that way. Too many people treat commandments as suggestions or kind of like an and An ideal standard. But of course, we all know we can't reach it, you know. So and it's like, no, these are commandments. Verse three, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, you being set apart, your sanctification that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Paul gave these commandments to first century, or first century Roman culture that was littered with sexual immorality. Uh, you have to understand, at the time this was written in the Roman Empire, there was no such thing as chastity or sexual purity. They, they were unknown virtues. People are like, what do you mean? You, you, you know, they, they, like, it, they didn't even comprehend them. Uh, but Paul's making the point here, Christians take their standards of sexual morality from God. Not from culture, and that that's no different today than it was two thousand years ago. every generation i don 't know why seems to think that they're the first ones to, to discover sexual immorality. oh, we're so more sexually free. No, let me tell you what is going on in the world right now? Nothing, nothing compared to the Roman culture that that was happening around Paul at the time. like honestly, it looks so tame today compared to then. Uh, now, yeah, let me read to you, uh, ancient writer, uh, Demosthenes, he expressed this general amoral view of sex in the ancient Roman Empire. He said, we keep prostitutes for pleasure. We keep mistresses for the day-to-day needs of our body. Uh, we keep wives for the faithful guardianship of our homes. Yeah, that, it all made you know, a lot of sense to then. And Paul made it very clear that the will of God was for the Christian. It's his will. It's for you. It's for me. That means that we need to follow it. Now, that is how you are sanctified, because when you start to follow God's will, you start to be set apart. You're now no longer living like other people. You live differently. Your life is set apart from how they live, and it's set apart to God. God wants us to be set apart from a godless culture and from a sexually immoral culture. If our sexual behaviour is no different than than the Gentiles who do not know God, who Paul calls here, then we're not sanctified. We're not set apart. And we're certainly not sanctified in the way that God wants us to be. So that's why Paul says those who do not know God, they don't have spiritual resources to to walk pure before the Lord. But you and I do, because we're reading this. We we now know what we're meant to do. That's why we have a responsibility to live differently from those who do not know God. Uh, Now, the ancient Greek word that was used here to talk about sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia. And it's it's actually a very broad word, and, and it really refers to any sexual relationship outside of the marriage covenant. Robert Thomas said this, "'The word requires broad definition here, as including all types of sexual sins between a male and a female. And I would say that the broad nature of, of the word here, porneia, it, it just it, it goes to show that it's not enough just to say, well, I, I, I've never had you know um, sex with somebody who's not my spouse. No, it goes more. It goes wider than that. It involves more than that. It's deeper than that. It's all sexual behavior outside the marriage covenant is sin. Now, you have to remember Hebrews thirteen four: marriage bed is undefiled. So God grants us sexual liberty and freedom in the marriage relationship. But Satan has just this strategy uh, to do all that he can to encourage sex outside of marriage and discourage sex inside marriage. That that's his goal. You ask anybody, you know, you're married for twenty years. Before they were married, they couldn't cut their hands off each other. After they're married, they're like, yeah, we, oh, we, have, we yeah, which is really not an important part of our life anymore. And so, so that's that's the opposite. It's meant to be the opposite. And so that's why we have to work at that. And and how do we do that? By possessing our own vessel, which is what Paul talks about. Uh, in sanctification and honour. When we live differently than the world, we now possess our body in sanctification and and honour. Immorality, immorality is the opposite of honour. Why? Because it degrades our own selves. Paul was trying to encourage Christians here to possess and hold their own vessel, their body. You take care of your body in a way that honors God because sexual sin and sexual immorality is actually a sin against your own body. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So let's read the first part of verse 6 here. That no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter. David Guzik said this about this verse. When we are sexually immoral, we take advantage of and defraud others, and we cheat them in greater ways than we can ever imagine. The adulterer defrauds his spouse and children. The fornicator defrauds their future spouse and children, and both defraud their illicit partner. This is the reality. Now, you have to remember Leviticus chapter eighteen. You want to you want to know like God's ideas on on sexual morality that are through the entire Bible. Read Leviticus eighteen. Uh, it's a chapter where where God instructed Israel about sexual morality, and the idea there was not things were covered there that aren't, aren't even talked about today. But the idea there was uh, that you couldn't even uncover the nakedness of another person that's not your spouse. So in other words, the idea of the Bible is that nakedness, just your your pure, your body with no clothes on, of an individual only belongs to your spouse and nobody else. Therefore, nobody else apart from your spouse should ever see your naked body. And it's a violation of God's law to give that nakedness to anyone else. It's also a violation of God's law for anybody else to take it from you. Now, then he goes on and the second half of verse six, and the reason I broke it up is because he has a because in verse six. And, and so I wanted to get to the end of that section so that I could then say, you know, what, what, what's the because? Okay, so we get to that part of verse six. He says, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. The Lord is our avenger. Now, this is the first of four reasons that Paul is about to talk about for sexual purity. We can trust God and trust that he will punish sexual immorality and that nobody gets away with it, even if it's undiscovered. That doesn't happen. Verse 7. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness... So now this is the second reason why Christians should be sexually pure, because it's part of our calling. The, the, that call is not to uncleanness, but to holiness. Therefore, sexual immorality is its just inconsistent with who we're meant to be in Christ Jesus. And Paul develops this same line of thought in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, where he concludes with the idea that we should glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are gods. Verse eight. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God. So I'm going to stop there in verse eight. The third reason for sexual purity is because to reject God's call to sexual purity is not actually rejecting man. It's actually rejecting God himself. So, Despite all the very simple, easy ways that we rationalize sexual immorality, we're still rejecting God when we do it. And Paul has a very strong command here. Uh, and and he, he's, I don't think he's necessarily addressing the church in Thessalonica because they had fallen into this sin. He was addressing it with them so that they wouldn't fall into the sin. It was actually preventative rather than it was him rebuking them. And he, why? Because he, Paul knew the seductive strength of sexual immorality. No different then than that it is now. It seduces you. It lures you in. Oh, it's not going to hurt. It's just one time. Nobody will find out. It's all those things. It's going to feel so good. Uh, Paul knew all that. V- verse 8, part B. Who has also given us his Holy Spirit? This is the fourth reason for sexual purity that Paul talks about we have been given the Holy Spirit who empowers uh, those people who are willing and trusting God to overcome sexual sin. In other words, they understand they're not going to do it in their own power. They're going to do it through the power of the Holy Spirit. By his Holy Spirit, God has given us the resources for victory. and, and, And we have a responsibility to use those resources. If we don't rely on the Holy Spirit, then we'll never be more than conquerors. This is what Paul was saying, verse nine. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. Uh, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. That must have been very comforting for them to read that because he hadn't been with them long. And, and here he says, you know what? Um, these principles are so basic that I know that you already get all this and you're amazing. And uh, you've, already, you've already understood the importance taught by God of love. And uh, it's so important that we all need to be reminded. And that's a comment for you and for me, that this, the, the most basic principle for us as Christ followers uh, is that we need to have brotherly love uh, and that we're not reminded that we need to love one another. That's just, it's just something that should flow out of us. Verse 10. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren. You love all of them who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. So, and that wasn't that the Thessalonians were without love. That wasn't the case. Their love toward all the the brethren and people around them was actually well known. But Paul says, still not enough. Got to love more and more and more. Which means, I think, as Christ followers, we need to always be growing in our love for everybody. Verse 11 that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your own hands as we commanded you. Now, this is amazing uh, because it means that we need to have aspiration and ambition in our life. And, And what is that? That we should aspire to have a quiet life. If you don't have aspirations and ambitions, you need to get some. You need to ask God, what should I be aspiring to? Now, the number one thing you should be aspiring to is to lead a life that God wants you to live. And Paul says here to the church in Thessalonica, it should be a quiet life. Uh, Now, the word quiet that was used here actually means peaceful, calm, restful and satisfied. Uh, David Guzik said this about the quiet life. The quiet life contradicts the hugely successful modern attraction to entertainment and excitement. This addiction to entertainment and excitement is damaging both spiritually and culturally. We might say that excitement and entertainment are like a religion for many people today. The religion has a god themselves. The religion has priests, celebrities. The religion has a prophet which is continuing entertainment, perpetual entertainment. The religion has its own scriptures, uh, all the tabloids, the, the entertainment, the, the, the news websites, informational programs. And this religion also has its own places of worship, amusement parks, theaters, concert halls, sports arenas. And we could say that every television and internet connection is also a little chapel. So I think you understand, I don't think he's going down the legalistic road. He's just saying that these are all the opportunities for the the religion of excitement and entertainment to seduce us in. Um, And the religion of excitement and entertainment seduces people into living their lives for one thing and one thing only, and it's called the thrill of the moment. It's living for that initial thrill. But honestly, you you and I know that those thrills don't last. They are momentary. uh, And all that is going to happen to us is we're gonna start thinking about what the next thrill is that we can have. And this religion of excitement and entertainment basically conditions us to only ask one question about anything we ever do, is it fun? Is it fun? It never wants us to ask more important questions about, well, is it true? Does God want you to do it? Is it right? Is it good? Is it godly? We need to live a quiet life so that we can take the time and give the attention to listen to God. And when we do that and we live in a quiet life, we can listen to God and get to know him better and know what we should run away from and what we should run to. Now, Paul says here to mind your own business which means something very simple to Christians. Focus on you. As I've said many times, you do you, I'll do me. Let God be God. Focus on you and your life. Don't meddle in the lives of other people. Mind your own business. It's actually a big biblical idea. And that's why, now, when you work with your hands, which is the next point, it's much easier to mind your own business. Idle hands are the ones who are more interested in looking at other people. So Paul says, work with your own hands. You, have to, you and I have to recognise the dignity and honour of actual physically working. Work is God's plan for the progress of society and the church. And I think we, we run the risk of falling into Satan's trap when we accept, expect things to just come easily. Uh, or we regard God's blessing uh, in our life as an opportunity to just take it easy, uh, to become lazy. Uh, That's not what God has called us to do. Manual labor, at the time that Paul wrote this, was despised by the hierarchy of Greek culture. They thought that the better off you were and the better person you were, the less actual work you did. But think about God. God Gives us a carpenter, woodworking, stoneworking, construction king, Jesus. God gives us apostles who are fishermen, the toughest of the tough. God gives us missionaries like Paul who had businesses making tents. Uh, God's economy in our own lives is the complete opposite of what the world teaches us. The world teaches us uh, work hard, become successful, then do nothing, just live off your success. God says, no, always keep doing more and more, always abound more and more, always keep working, Uh, don't ever stop. Fishermen understand that the day that they stop fishing is the day they stop eating. So they understand they've got to keep going. Uh, This is the model that was set for us by God in his word. Verse 12, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. We must live a life as an example, lacking nothing. Uh, We have to live a life that is toward those who are outside. When we combine the love of our brothers and sisters with work, physical work, that's when we walk properly which is what paul says people now people who aren't christians those who are outside they're going to see our example and then become influenced to want to be a follower of jesus now i understand that there's a pressure there of well man i don't know if i know how to live you know so that other people can look at my life well you need to start And it's not pious as long as you are maintaining an imitation of Christ. Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Not imitate me as I do my own thing, or imitate me as I follow the world. No, it's imitate me as I imitate Christ. And uh, we need to embrace that so that we can lack nothing. Paul completes the thought that he actually began in the previous chapter of Uh, First Thessalonians chapter 3, he starts it in verse 10. And he completes it here. Now, what did he say in verse 10? That we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. So that was the whole point of what he's writing here in this first half of chapter 4. If they followed his teaching and if they followed his example, then they would lack nothing and they would come to the place of genuine Christian maturity. So What are our observations today? They're actually pretty simple for me personally. As we live our lives, do we ask about everything that we're doing? Is that godly? Is that true? Is that what I should be doing? If we did that, and that became our must-have filter, instead of, well, it's fun, and it's going to be awesome, um, then I think we could... Live more towards how God wants us to live. So my, my observation to me and to you today is what are the things in your life that you're doing that aren't godly? You, you know you shouldn't do it. I know I shouldn't be doing them. What are they? Well, we need to course correct. And I think sometimes people struggle with course correction. This is why I think people struggle because I see people, a, lot of, a lot of people like they're, they're, they're living a life like this. They want to get over here. So what they do is they just try to veer off. And, and as you, as in just make slow incremental changes. Well, the problem is, is that when I see people do that, I see them get sucked back in very quickly. I, I very rarely see people actually make it to where they're going. I think the best way is to make a perpendicular right angle turn and just head in a different 90 degree angle immediately as you read this and as you pray on it. There, you've got a much better chance of pulling away from your current trajectory. So that's my observation. Let me pray for you today because I I don't want you to be condemned about any of this. If you ever get condemned, well, I just don't know how to live like that. That means that you have forgotten the importance of verse 8 in this chapter, that you and I can't live like this without the power of the Holy Spirit combined with our determination to be set apart and be holy. That's the combination. And uh, that means conviction. What is conviction? Conviction is positive, almost positive guilt from the Holy Spirit where he's saying, see that, yeah, I know you keep doing it, you just gotta stop. Why? Because you're gonna be a better person, you're gonna live more like you know the, the life that I want you to live. That's what we need to do. Heavenly Father, I pray for every single person watching this, bless them, encourage them, lift them up. I pray, Lord, that they wouldn't be discouraged by anything that they've learned today, but encouraged and inspired to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, that that people who've had clarity today on different areas of their life, maybe that were out of sync, maybe they weren't in, in line with your word, that God, they would have the conviction in a positive way. They wouldn't feel condemned or feel down or feel that they're useless, but God, they would feel like, no, God, I can do this through the power of your Holy Spirit. Lift them up today. Help each of us to live lives that are set apart from the world and set apart to you in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.